Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the July 2nd, 2023 session, focusing on Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19, an impossible text. I'm David Cassidy. I'm Nikki Hardiman. And I'm Daniel Glaze. So my question for you today, since I know that all three of us are parents, I love my children. Regularly, I think about sacrificing them. <laughs> no, they will do something. Okay, they're all grown now, so it's not the case. But when they were younger, there were days that it was, I brought you into this world. And I can take you. <laughs> <I can> <laughs> That's no, fair. No, in all seriousness, I'm not going to ask you that question. But I think we all, as parents, those of us who are parents, understand that in spite of those times when we get angry with our children, or perhaps they do that set us off, even then, we don't think about really taking them out. It's my right. <laughs> And so we, we have a text today, and we're going to move right on into it fairly quickly. But it's one of those texts that is considered remarkably difficult, at least if we're being honest, right? Mm-hmm. That there are, yeah, there are cliche interpretations of it. There are ways we find ourselves hearing people explain it. But if you just sit down and read this with a cup of coffee, it's difficult. And I'm not sure that maybe we'll come up with some great ideas for how to approach this text today. But I think at least on the outset, our sense is, boy, we wish we had another text for today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> there you go. And because Daniel is a brave soul, he not only had the t- difficult text last week, but has taken this one on. So, Daniel, we're in your capable hands. That is a fine line between brave and stupid, and I, <laughs> I may be straddling that, that fence. Who knows? And you bring up a good point, David, before I get into this. I think it's okay to state our difficulties with certain texts, but then talk about why they are. Just as mm-hmm. I have stories in my own family, and my own life that I'm not proud of, but but at the same time, I don't need to deny them because it's yeah. part of who I am. Right. So anyway, let's get into this. And as David alluded to, last week we discussed a very difficult passage, the one with Hagar and Ishmael. Mm-hmm. This Sunday's lesson one is not a lot better. In fact, this story is perhaps the one that distresses me the most in all of Scripture. To be honest, in this story, I don't like how any of the characters are portrayed including God. Let's take a closer look. If you recall the story, God promises Abraham that he will have many descendants, and they will form a great nation. It wasn't until Abraham was a hundred and Sarah, his wife, is ninety, that they receive word that a son will be born. When they receive this news, Sarah begins laughing. Wouldn't you? Tell you what, as you're preparing to teach this lesson, go up to a 90-year-old woman in your church and tell her that she's pregnant. Watch her start laughing. No, don't do that. No, yes, don't, to be yeah, clear, don't, 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 that do that. Was, don't do that. Yeah. No, that was rhetorical. Yes. Sarah and Abraham's son is born and his name is Isaac, a reference to this laughing. Fast forward a few years. God tells Abraham to take Isaac, his son, his only son, up the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. We don't know exactly how old Isaac is in this story. In most of the artistic representations of this story, Isaac is painted as a little boy. But scripture doesn't exactly say, for in Hebrew, Isaac is called a lad. Not much help there either. 
So we don't know the age of Isaac or how much agency he has with his father, but regardless, from the get-go, this is distressing. It opens with God seemingly demanding the sacrifice of a child. And remember, this is the child Abraham and Sarah had late in life. This is their one hope for the future. Go, God says to Abraham, make of him a burnt offering. And somehow, Abraham obeys and trusts God, and he does as he's told. Whenever I read this story, I get a horrible mental image of Isaac as a boy being placed on the altar, looking up at his father who is about to sacrifice him. It's awful, I know, but I can't shake that image from my mind. In the end, thank goodness, God provides a ram to be sacrificed instead of Isaac. But Abraham doesn't know that when God asks him to sacrifice his son, and God does not tell him. And where is Sarah? You may have noticed that Abraham doesn't tell his wife Sarah what he's about to do, and we all know why. Because he knows what her response would be. God wants you to do what? To my baby Isaac over my dead body. So friends, how should we read this story? Do we just read it straight? Do we just take it at face value? If so, we have a God who demands child sacrifice and then changes his mind later about it. Here's what Joey Jeter, a retired professor from Bright Divinity School in Texas, says. He says, I have never preached from Genesis 22. I just can't. Perhaps someday I will find a way to preach the Abraham-Isaac story, but that time is not yet. Like Abraham, I have a son, and if God were to tell me to take my son up a mountain and sacrifice him there, then God and I would be quite finished with one another. Whether you agree or not, can you sympathize with that feeling? I sure can. Maybe we ought not read it straight, but instead interpret it. Not to soften it, mind you, but at least to try to understand. And I'm sure that's what we'll do in this podcast, because there are many different interpretations of this, pod, of this passage. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But here's what I'll say for now. And I don't think this is satisfactory, but one of the things this story teaches us is that we must have no other God but God. Nothing else. Not the God of family or anything else. God calls for ultimate devotion, and God offers that in return. Like I said, that's not satisfactory. For what it's worth, that's a little background on our text for today. Bravo, Daniel. Thank you for taking <laughs> the thank you for taking the hit on this one. I am with you and with the gentleman from Bright Divinity. This text is difficult no matter how you stretch it or turn it over or look at it. It doesn't matter what you do with it. It doesn't get any easier. And I think that if I heard that word for God, first I might call the psychiatric hospital to go have myself put in because there would clearly be something wrong. But if it were real, I'd definitely be done with God also. Absolutely. And I don't say this. And I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem saying that. No. Yeah. 
just, and I don't say this to be flippant, but actually, if one of my friends or one of my congregants came to me and said, God has asked me to sacrifice my son, it wouldn't be a joke. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think, oh man, that's one faithful person. I would call the police. Yeah. That's what I'd have to do. Have to. So that's one thing here. And again, I'm not trying to soften it, but I don't think, I think there has to be more behind this, which is why I want us to talk about it and understand it, because I cannot read this story straight and just say, here we have God who asks someone to sacrifice their child. I'm not okay with that. Right. Yes, it's in the story, but there's got to be, there's got to be some more understanding here. So I, like, I can look at this passage and study it for, with my academic lens. And mm-hmm. more often than not, studying the scripture academically impacts my faith in a positive way, almost always. Um, but that doesn't happen with this passage. There's not even a whole lot of good that we can do with the passage, looking at it from like a historical critical perspective we can use we could use a literary critical method because some have said that the passage could be put in there as a statement against child sacrifice so in that day and time child sacrifice was very common and except for this passage we don't see that happen in in the Jewish faith, like it, in, especially in the ancient Jewish faith, like that wasn't a part of their practice. And so academically, or like when we critically look at the text, we can see that, okay, maybe this is a story of God no longer, God doesn't want this. It's not a part of what God wants. I just think there's a better way to do it. Like, yeah, no, I agree with you. Cause I, I mean, I've read that perspective, I, and mm-hmm. I even appreciate it. I appreciate sure. the interpretation that whenever someone wants to harm a child, here is God to say no. Sure. And to offer another path out rather than mm-hmm. hurting a child. But yes, that that takes a lot. We have to import a lot. A lot. To, to because get there. it doesn't deal with the part, like if, if Abraham had the idea to go sacrifice Isaac on his own because of what he saw happening around him and he thought it was important and then God stopped it, I could work with it. Okay. That Comes makes too sense. late. Right. God tells Abraham to kill his son, to murder his son. I don't know how you do anything with that is productive or helpful or enlightening. Yeah. And there's another perspective that talks about, and it's funny because that in in one of the opening lines, it says, God tested Abraham. But there's a rabbinic tradition that says it's actually God who's being tested. Mm. And and I can see, you'll find out, I don't buy any of these fully, but I appreciate something about them. What I appreciate about that is, if Abraham, if God were to allow Abraham to go through with this, then God's promise to Abraham is not true. Right. That that God has lied about of Bring that it. the line will continue through through Isaac. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. the promise is not true, and so it. There's some folks who say it's actually God being tested, 
and God eventually passes the test. Again, I appreciate that, but there's some misbehavior before we get there. <laughs> yes. That's that's hard too. Now, yeah. sometimes yeah, I think I've heard that also and I'm like I'm with you. I can appreciate it. It is it's not the worst attempt to understand the story. There are people who have done some things that do help us open the story up a little. For me, I have a little bit of a the way that I read and engage with scripture. I can it's not in the text. This is stepping outside of the text and I acknowledge it. And it's contradictory to how the text is written, but I could add one word and it would help. Abraham thinks he hears God say to sacrifice his son. Oh, and, that, that's so much better. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah I right? mean, seriously. Yeah. That changes everything. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but like, I do think there is something in that because I think that even today we will claim that we hear things from God, but, uh, and I, get, I have to say, I get this one from my daddy, but I think God gets blamed on a lot of things God has nothing to do with. And if that holds true, it could also be true in scripture. It just changes the way we read scripture. Yeah. Cause that interpretation it makes God come out a whole lot better, but not Abraham oh, nobody so else. much. No, so. it, but yes, I that would. I'm hoping some ancient <laughs> version of this, some ancient text. Somebody finds it. Yeah, and says, "Oh, we, we didn't copy that piece. word. We Oof, were missing yeah. this piece." <laughs> yeah, that would I would sleep a whole lot easier. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. This text is so full of deception, too. And part of the contrast that I'm struck with is, one, the detail with which the story is told. Yeah. He gets up in the morning. You can almost feel the coolness of the morning. Mm -hmm. He saddles the donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood. He gives you all this textual detail. You get texture. But there is the immediate deception, right? Hey. Isaac and I are going to go up here. We'll be back, he says, knowing mm -hmm. that it's probably just him coming back. And then he lies to Isaac, who asks him, where's the sheep? Where's the lamb? And, oh, God will provide that. And so it there's just a ton of, yeah. wow, deception in this text. There's also, this is not quite as popular, but I have heard the, the interpretation that Abraham was not going to fully go through with it. That there was, Abraham never would have fully sacrificed his child there. But that interpretation, I get that that does rescue Abraham a little bit. Yeah. But it falls short so many different other places. A, the text doesn't actually say that. And B, it, God in the story, God stops it when Abraham has the knife ready to kill. That's verse ten. Yep. Took the knife to kill his son. Th this idea, oh, he wouldn't have gone through with it. He got pretty daggone close. Yeah. And yeah. so there's. I hate to be so wishy-washy here, but we're trying to look at it. I, I as much as I say we I don't think we can just read it straight. <laughs> Looking at it from all these different perspectives, 
that falls apart too. Mm -hmm. At this point, my congregation or our listeners are probably thinking, okay, they're going to tell us the right one. (laughs) We've gone through all the bad answers. Here's the right one. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't have it. I don't either. I do. Oh, thank goodness. Oh, good. Enlighten us, David. I'm teasing. I don't. (laughs) Uh, And uh, you said it was right when he had the knife up. Like, he's got the knife in his hand. He's holding it up. He's about to stab his son. And we were talking before we got, before we hit record on the podcast, that after this event, the family kind of falls apart. And I don't think Isaac is the same. Isaac is the least of those, of the fathers of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac has the least words. Isaac has the least power. Isaac is, in general, passive in all of his stories after this. And I think that it, I think there was trauma. Yeah, I was going to say, excuse me, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was just going to say, yes, I absolutely agree with you. I am no therapist, but today we'd say he has some PTSD from right. So that no matter how you look at it, either God or his father Mm -hmm. was ready to take him out. Neither of those are good for your sanity or mental health. Yeah, I'm hesitant to draw a clear line, but... Sarah dies shortly after this. She does. And so my point is not that necessarily that it caused it, but this family is, to put it crassly, messed up after this moment. <laughs> this is not a positively pivotal moment in no. their, they don't tell this story at reunions. Okay. One other thing that I have read, and it's not a widely held belief. I read it one place and it stuck with me that some have interpreted Isaac as having some kind of mental deficit, even from the beginning and being born to a 90 year old woman, that's believable. But when we talked about the age of Isaac, you might wonder how young does a kid have to be to get put on top of a pyre? And I think that while we don't know what age Isaac is, I think Isaac was old enough to understand what was happening. And so if he had some kind of mental deficits, it would explain how his father was able to get him on the pyre and keep him there. What a what an interesting text. This is one of those texts that, reminds me that the scriptures often are more about reading us than us understanding and Mm. reading the text. Amen to that. Amen. Because, as you've heard for the last 20 minutes, we have been sitting here struggling with this and admitting we have all the questions and none of the answers. Yep. And this text generates so many questions. So I'm a fan of art. And long have been. And even when I was studying philosophy, the area of aesthetics, which is the philosophy of art, the questions like, what is art? What makes something art and something not art? Are part of that conversation. Because when you enter a museum and you're presented with a work of art, 
there is this interpretive task that's requested of you, right? Why is this here? Why am I looking at it? What is it supposed to mean? What am I supposed to take away from this? Which are very similar questions to what we bring <laughs> to the text. And I recall once Regina and I were in the High Museum in Atlanta and they had an exhibit and hanging there was a snow shovel. Just a regular old snow shovel you might find at, find at Ace Hardware. And, and I thought it was hilarious because it was clearly, yes, clearly, suggesting what is art and what is not. Can common everyday objects be art? If I'm standing there appreciating it, trying to understand it, does that make it art? Mm. There's all these wonderful questions that come from a doggone shovel hanging there. And more recently, I was reading about some artist that had taken a banana and used a piece of duct tape and taped it to the wall in a gallery. I saw exact, that. I think the same thing's going on. Yeah. All the questions, none of the answers. Maybe this text is good for us in that way, in that mm. leads us to ask a lot of questions. Wow. And that in itself, I think, has value. And it tells us a lot about who we are and the kinds of questions we ask. And it puts us in a wonderful posture of humility in front of a mysterious God who acts in ways we don't always understand. It's okay to admit that. <laughs> so, tape a banana to the wall of your classroom. <laughs> Everybody stare at it and ask all the questions and then read this text and do the same. <laughs> and I hope you have a lot of questions. All seriousness, ask the questions. If that's all you do with this session, that's good. Mm -hmm. that's enough thank you all for this good conversation thank you thanks learn more about our faith element bible study curriculum at faithelement.net faith element is a service of faith lab <laughs>